It is March 25th, 1954. We are honoring the best films of 1953. And it's the 26th annual Academy Awards. We are at two different theaters on two different sides of the country. One is a is the uh, RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood. And the other is the NBC Century Theater in New York City. Um, over in New York, got Frederick March handling the festivities. Here in Los Angeles, Donald O'Connor and all his merry, hilarious ways are are uh, coordinating the festivities. Uh, so now it is time for the big award of the night. I'm sure this will be a shocker. The envelope, please. And the award goes to from here to eternity. You know, it'll be a lot easier whenever uh, we go back to being in one place because this is this whole two places thing is just like all this extra verbiage for it's my kind of, trail. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious, though. It's sort of like matching our own actual experience. The fact that you and I can't even record together right now. Oh, Isn't my God. I hadn't thought about that. In case are, you guys don't know, I maybe you watch the news sometimes. There's a pandemic. And... And Sam and I have been very diligent little uh, pandemicers um, <laughs> in our uh, quarantining in our L.A. apartments. Uh, we no longer know uh, what people look like or the no. touch of a man. And um, <laughs> forgotten, totally forgotten. All these, all these, uh, all these things. It's the second year the Oscars are on TV. And you know what's crazy? I read... The second ceremony, it drew 43 million viewers. That's How crazy huge. is that? That's huge, too. Think about also, like, we, it, it takes, like, a decade, probably, for TVs to get in everyone's homes, too. Totally. So, from, like, the late 40s, when TV first really, like, 49, 50 is when TV really starts to become TV. And then uh, it, it takes until the late fifties for like everybody in the country to have a TV, which is still pretty quick. But like yeah. you think about 1954, 43 million people watching, that's like most of the country with televisions. And it's also you like, know? think of it this way too. They're not just counting people, they're counting TVs. So it's 43 million TVs are being watched. You know, there could be six, seven people in a family watching one TV. So it's even more people really the number would be but it's crazy and you think about like let's see the population of the united states in 1953 was 160.2 million so wow. like everybody was watching the oscars like this is a huge Everyone. huge deal um and and it's your chance to see all your favorite movie stars and um and this year in particular has a movie that was so popular at the box office and it had been a, such a controversial and popular book. Um, but we'll get into that. We surely will. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention too about these kind of earlier TV ceremonies that we're getting into now, I just think it's so awesome. Like what lengths they would go to, to get like the stars on TV. Like for example, they still had Shirley Booth presenting the best actor award, even though she was, being like patched in from a, a theater in Philadelphia, or they cut to Gary Cooper on set in Mexico, which he pre-recorded. Like all of these lengths they would go to to still get the stars on screen for Oscar night. And what a nice, and that's like almost showing behind the scenes type mm -hmm. stuff. Cause you got Gary Cooper on set, you got Shirley Booth backstage. And yeah. you, it's just like this whole window into 
um, into to moviedom, into actordom that you're not you're not getting anywhere else. And so it's TV passion together a show. Let's dive into supporting actor and supporting actress. Both were um, from from here to eternity. Uh, yes, they were. I mean, a lot of things were from here to eternity this year. It won eight Academy Awards, which at the time tied the record set by Gone with the Wind. Um, although Gone with the Wind also won two honorary awards, but um, but still the competitive award record at this point was eight. Yep. So this is the movie that tied Gone with the Wind for that record. It also made, you know, it cost a little over a million dollars and made 30 something million at the box office. Like this was a huge, huge hit in addition to being a critical hit. Um, so the fun thing about Frank Sinatra, I'm sure you were, you probably know more about this than I do. <laughs> I know that you've been uh, uh, researching him, so maybe you should speak to how he mm. got the role in the movie. I definitely want to touch on that. There are, oh my gosh, just like the lore behind Frank Sinatra and the Hollywood myths that just like go with him. Mm-hmm. You can dive into this like wormhole for hours. It's insane, mm-hmm. all of the legends surrounding not just him and his career, but this movie in particular. I'm sure some of our viewers probably um, know, our listeners know, you might even know, one of the most, I guess, talked about theories of how he got this role was because of his ties to the mafia. And there's a fun tie-in with a future Best Picture winner, The Godfather, where they have um, a storyline, a subplot that sort of echoes this myth of Frank Sinatra wanting this role, couldn't get it, so a mob boss... Uh, from the mafia, said they were going to make Harry Cohn, who was in charge of Columbia, an offer he couldn't refuse, and they cut off a horse's head, put it into his bed, and the rest is godfather history. Now, do you think that's true? (laughs) Uh, I I think the horse's head part is probably not (laughs) true. I mean, it's pretty well known that Frank Sinatra had some involvement with the mob, so that's not that outlandish. (laughs) But, um, But Frank Sinatra was also actually talented unlike the character in the movie the godfather who's not um that's a fair point uh it seems like it seems like it's an exaggeration at best but um or folklore you know the legend become the myth becomes the legend becomes the 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 history um but i also read that uh ava gardner had something to do with this as well and that one i think is probably um, there's probably some more truth to that one where, you know, this was at the the height of Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra, their, you know, their affair they had while they were both still married. Then they finally got their divorces. They got married, you know, and all of this was at the height of that. And it was also the height of Sinatra's depression where he had essentially lost he'd hit rock bottom. Basically, he had his contract was terminated. He couldn't get a record deal. This was sort of his last straw, and Ava Gardner told Columbia, essentially, if you don't give him this part, I'm afraid he's going to kill himself. And I think, to me, that makes a lot more sense than (laughs) the mafia ordering a hit on a movie studio. I think that just seems to, you know, fall into place better, in my opinion. Yeah, although Ava Gardner was at MGM, so that also, like, is a little confusing. It is. Um, What's crazy is she was also nominated this year for Best Actress. And in that's Mo- what I think is... Which was... In Mogambo, which is MGM. was MGM, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and she was in Showboat, which is MGM. And yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, but yes, and she was like, you know, the most beautiful thing in the world at the time. Definitely. You know, and um, and such a huge, huge star. Um, but and so she definitely could have that influence. Um, and I but, think it was more so that it was her influence on Hollywood in general, not just one movie studio, but it seemed to be an overarching influence. Yeah. And uh, it is certainly interesting that they were this on again, off again thing for so long. And they were both nominated in the same year. Yes. And, and even with that, I'm going to touch on that briefly because the ceremony we have to remember, you know, takes place in 1954 technically. <laughs> and uh, right after Ava Gardner finished filming uh, Mogambo, she left and fled to Spain where she had an affair with some other guy. And, uh, you know, Sinatra's career was kind of going back up, but now his marriage with Gardner was declining. It was just a whole mess of crap here. And I think it's fascinating that they were both nominated in the same year when their marriage was essentially at its lowest point, and she didn't even show up. Yeah, and and it's funny, too, because as dramatic as the situation is here, like, their... Um, their on again off again thing their their tension they have so many like togethers fallouts i mean like they have such a a volatile relationship because you know yes. frank sinatra was also so, supposed to star in um in uh carousel mm. um and uh there's i forget what the specifics are but there was something that about his about not wanting to be away from Ava Gardner was yes. like the reason why he ended up walking off the film. It's either that or he found out he was going to have to film everything twice because they were making the movie in both Cinemascope and um, and regular right. flat uh, widescreen at the same, not uh, regular 35 mm standard, yeah. yeah, the standard definition at the same time. Um, and he didn't want to do every scene twice. One of the two reasons is the reason that he didn't do Carousel. But it's it's interesting. This is not his movie. No. Um, but he plays this drunkard, uh, fun-loving character um, and uh, has a tragic ending that comes two-thirds of the way through the movie, mm-hmm. you know, before Pearl Harbor, the attack even happens. Definitely. So, um, which, yeah, and by it's... the way, From Here to Eternity <laughs> is about the drama uh, within an army unit uh, at a base in uh, at Pearl Harbor, um, or the base at Pearl Harbor, and then the last uh, 20 minutes of the film uh, deals with the attack itself. To bounce off of that, too, is, you know, he made this movie, you say it was a very low point in his career, he was unemployable nobody wanted to spend a dime on him he took mm-hmm. this job for eight thousand dollars for eight weeks wow. of filming basically a grand a week is what he got paid which for frank sinatra in 1953 crazy any star of that caliber i mean but what a good investment for him long term because even oh, though yeah. he wasn't paid much for this movie this puts him back at the top and then he he Definitely. just stays there for you know and he 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 bridges and does more music than movies eventually but he he remains a uh, a top star for the rest of his career and what's mm-hmm. cool as well as we talked about you know however he landed this job what have you the Ava Gardner story that only gave him a screen test that didn't even give him the job he still had to earn it 
Yeah. And so when he screen tested, and what I love about this is his screen test is still in the movie. It's the scene where he walks into the bar where Montgomery Clift and Donna Reed are at the bar, and he takes the two olives and throws them down the bar. That was all ad-libbed, and Fred Zinnemann, the director, loved it so much, he kept it in the film. It's, it, this, is, this is probably his, his best work. He also made The Man with the Golden Gun. No, that's a but James Bond movie. The Man with the Golden Arm. <laughs> yes, there it is. <laughs> Slightly different. Um, slightly different. One word, but very different movies that he felt was his best work. And also the competition, it's a no-brainer. You know what I'm yes. saying? It's an absolute no-brainer. Because, um, you know, like uh, Eddie Albert, who um, who had a really fun career, my, I have to say, um, and is also in one of the great um, uh, sitcoms, silly sitcoms of the 1960s in Green, A- Green Acres, um, he's really fun in Roman Holiday. That's that's fine. A nomination's enough there. Um, I I can't tell you all the negative feelings I have about Shane. So um, and I'm sorry, Brandon DeWild. I know that you're. I I just I cannot get into the kid in Shane. Um, he he does not make the movie for me. Um, same. So Jack Palance being in Shane. Like sorry, no. Um, and Robert Strauss's nomination in Stalag 17 is just kind of uh, bizarre. Um, so I, I, this like is a no-brainer. It's Frank Sinatra yeah. all the way. And so. you remember him just like you remember Donna Reed, who also you know, won. Her and her role is she's billed below. No, Frank Sinatra's billed below her, but um, her role is more consequential, and it is bridging on a lead. Uh, in the movie, uh, Donna Reed has an affair with Montgomery Clift. We'll get to him. Um, and she plays a, uh, a, a coded version of a hooker. Correct. Um, of a prostitute in the film. And she um, she's she's interesting. She's complex. She, like, has one name, but her, her name is actually something else. And, um, and she wants a certain kind of life and she's just trying to make a money for that certain kind of life and then this soldier comes in and steals her heart and makes her reconsider everything that she's ever thought it's like a such a great arc of her character and um and donna reed who most of you probably know from it's a wonderful life um you know she plays a much harder edged character and this than she does in, in that movie. And, and she's playing against type, just like a couple people are in this film. And she totally, totally sells it. And um, and she's also somebody who had a great little career as well, because after this movie, she ended up being like a, a television pioneer yeah. and had a production company and made her own TV show called The Donna Reed Show, which was a very long-lasting family sitcom. And and so she um, she ended up being uh, one of uh, the first um, one of the first uh, even though she played a housewife it was her show and she was sure she was the center so um, yeah. so she's like such a she's such I mean she's so engaging in this film and 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 I I love this win so much and. Once again, you know, like I know Geraldine Page is picking up her first nomination here and uh, Grace Kelly's there and we'll get to her next year. 
Um, I'd love to give Thelma Ritter an Oscar, but I mean, <laughs> no. but this is Donna Reed's, you know, it is far and away. She's so great in this movie. I love, I just love the, the, the final shot, this movie between her and Deborah Carr on the oh, boat sailing God. away and Deborah oh. Carr throws in the lays and they just have that moment together where they're both saying goodbye to a life they don't want. But there's still yeah. so much sorrow and sadness. Oh, because it's just heartbreaking. Behind the loves of their lives. Yeah. And, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, it's so tragic and so beautiful. Yeah. You know, and the fact that there's all this location photography in Hawaii, the whole film just really helps sell the whole thing. Because they're, you know, when they when they show. I mean, I'm sure the boat itself is in the studio, but when they're showing the reverse shot, you're actually looking at Hawaii. Yes. Um, and, and you know, Deborah Carr and, um, and Donna Reed don't interact the whole film. Uh, the movies are, uh, the movies keep their storylines pretty separate, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, but when they, it, it's just so beautiful that the last moment is between them because they don't know each other, but their stories are so paralleled let's get into the best actor race shall we we'll save best actress okay we'll, we'll save best actress um okay so let me just read the nominees real quickly and then we'll break let's this do down um so marlon brando is up for julius caesar um his year is coming uh richard burton is up for the robe his year will never come um <laughs> sure <won't. laughs> Uh, Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster are both up for From Here to Eternity. And then William Holden, who did not win an Oscar for Sunset Boulevard, uh, <laughs> wins here for Stalag 17. Yes. First thing I'm going to say is Stalag 17 is a really good movie. Um, it is suspenseful. William Holden is the epicenter of the film, and he's absolutely fantastic. I am 100% on board with William Holden. Having an Oscar, that said, I think that the reason he has this particular Oscar is because two people from the same movie are in the same category. Sure. One of those typical, they cancel each other out, and then somebody else kind of pulls through. Usually the, the one who would be in third place usually pulls through. We saw this with All About Eve, with uh, Betty Davis and um, Ann Baxter splitting the votes, and a third place kind of comes in to take the prize. And like Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster, uh, it's interesting that they're both in the best actor category and yet Deborah Carr and Donna Reed split categories. It is interesting. Uh, because I would say that their roles are comparable to the way that Donna Reed and Deborah Carr's roles are. And ultimately, I think this just comes down to star power. I think so too. The nominate in the way they were nominated. Um, but, uh, but Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster are both absolutely great in the film. This is probably some of their best work, respectively. Mm-hmm. Neither one. Uh, oh, actually, Burt Lancaster wins an Oscar later, and that is for uh, probably a better overall role for him. Right. Uh, so, so that's fine. But it is sad that we don't get an Oscar for Monty Clift, who, who is stunning he's just great in this movie he really is he's great in everything he does but he's great in in this movie he's so good in this movie it's yes i I agree with you what you said i think stalag 17 is a great movie as well another billy wilder pen script um it's really engaging as you said but 
to me, it just doesn't hold a candle to what Montgomery Clift is doing in this movie. It's so impressive what Montgomery Clift is able to achieve with this role. It's crazy. And all of the work he put into it as well, oftentimes when you see him, he plays a... Uh, a former army bugler who stops mm-hmm. bugling because somebody else comes in and they give him the number one spot. So he's like, screw that. I'm going to do a different way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's brought to Pearl Harbor and they want him to box there. And he used to be a very good boxer, but he hurt somebody in the boxing ring. He blinded somebody from a punch. Yeah. And since that happened, he says he never wanted to box again. He's afraid to hurt somebody. And I mean, even even just like that little bit about his character is so heartbreaking. And you feel that in every like line he expresses about boxing in the movie. You know, he's so against it, but it's not just boxing. He's against pain and violence in general, which I think is just so interesting because he's at the army. It's just such a... Um, a conflict, an inner conflict of character that he goes through in this movie. It's amazing to watch, and he does it perfectly. You're right. I mean, it's he has he has a, the most challenging arc in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he meets uh, every challenge that is thrown his way, and he apparently at this point it was already so respected as an actor that he made Burt Lancaster incredibly nervous. Lancaster <laughs> certainly was competent on his own. So it's interesting that he, he was so um, intimidated by this guy who is smaller than he was. Yeah, <laughs> um, very true. Uh, and, um, and the scene where he plays the bugle for oh. Frank Sinatra's character oh. is just heart wrenching. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really great role. It would have been a great opportunity to give him Oscar. So would um, a place in the sun. A place in the sun. See, um, <laughs> I think of the two, I still give it to him for a place in the sun since that's yeah. entirely his film. Definitely. Um, but uh, and also because there's just such a better opportunity to give Humphrey Bogart an Oscar than that movie. Um, but uh, then African Queen, which won that year. I mean. Um, but I, so I'm not like upset about William Holden winning for Salad 17. I just, I see a lot of other ways this category could have gone. Um, I think I understand why it happened the way it did. Though. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I totally. Cause you know, at this point in time, like Montgomery Clift is still in the eyes of the Academy in Hollywood, still kind of a rising star. He has a great reputation, but he's still young. He's mm-hmm. You know, he's only done a handful of movies, you know, and and you have William Holden here, who's been a big player since the late 30s, and he's done so many great movies, not won an Oscar yet. You know, I'm sure the Academy was like, we'll have plenty of time to award Montgomery Cliff, not knowing what was going to happen to him in only a few years. You know, one of my favorite William Holden moments, you know, you mentioned he'd been around since the late 30s. His first big movie is a 1939 film called Golden Boy, Mm -hmm. um, where he plays a boxer. Um, much like Monty Cliff does. And, <laughs> um, but Barbara Stanwyck was, was his co-star and she went to bat for him and basically got him the role. And then, you know, Barbara Stanwyck never won a, a competitive Oscar, but she won an honorary award late in her career. Um, and William Holden was, um, was the one who gave it to her and she oh. called him her other golden boy. That's It was adorable. just so sweet. Like, oh so, God. so sweet. 
Um, if Barbara Stanwyck ever called me her golden boy, I would probably just, like, <laughs> melt into a puddle. <laughs> I mean, like, I can't tell you how hard I stand Barbara Stanwyck and how sad I am that we don't really have other opportunities to talk about her anymore. <laughs> so true. Um, uh, so true. Anywho, um, but speaking of great actresses, mm-hmm. we do have a very interesting best actress category. We do. By interesting, I mean there's two people I want to talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, we got Leslie Caron for Lily. Lily. Um, we have Ava Gardner, as we mentioned, for Mogambo. Um, we have Magni McNamara for The Moon is Blue. And uh, then we have the two that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Um, Audrey Hepburn wins for Roman Holiday, and Deborah Carr is also nominated from here, for From Here to Eternity, like do everybody you, else in the movie. Do you know who Maggie McNamara is? I've you know, never really heard of her. I haven't. I have heard. Um, I've heard of the movie The Moon Is Blue. Um, uh, it's another William Holden movie. It has Otto Preminger and David Niven, so I know all of those people. Okay. Uh, but I, I've heard the name. I don't know anything about the film. Um, she uh, apparently, I'm looking at her Wikipedia right now. Uh-huh. Um, she had a, it looks like she had a very sad life. She um, only made three films after The Moon is Blue and did some guest spots on TV, um, became a typist in New York City after that and died of a barbiturate overdose at the age of 49 and 78. Oh my gosh. So yeah, very sad life. It looks like her best actress nomination just didn't really translate to anything for her, which is so sad. That is um, sad. You know, because um, uh, and so I, I would like to seek out that movie at some point and just because um, usually when when a no name person, when a person you haven't heard of gets a nomination like that, it's it is because they truly have a good performance, you know, Definitely. So, like Leslie Caron is there. Uh, it's her first big starring film. She's an up and comer at the time. She's never going to win an Oscar. Unfortunately for her, she's still with us. Knock on wood. Um, uh but she was, you know, she made a splash in an American in Paris, was very young, and then really started expanding herself as an actress throughout the next decade or so. Um, Ava Gardner, this is her only nomination. And, um, right? Only one? Yep. Uh, but the, the I think the competition here is Audrey Hepburn and Deborah Carr. Um, and... Which, I'll say this, when you take the category fraud <laughs> argument... Yeah. Out of this, the only true winner here is Audrey Hepburn, because Deborah Carr has almost the exact screen time as uh, Donna Reed has in this movie. In fact, I think yeah. Donna Reed might have a little bit more. It seems like she it does. It seems like it. And I will say, like, I, the the emphasis is on the men in this movie. Yeah. Um, on it is Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster's stories, so it it probably would have made more sense to have them both in supporting, both mm. the women. Um, but I mean, they are the lead; they are both the lead females in the movie, right. and, they, and they share virtually equal screen time, and they are both just as essential to the plot. Um, but uh, but all of that said, Deborah Carr, very uh, popular British actress. Um, this is one of the very few times I know of that she does not use a British accent in the film. Um, 
she does a very good American accent. You would never guess that she was British um, because Brits and Australians do American accents better than Americans. And, <laughs> um, and she, um, the, the fun thing about her is that she was known for being a proper lady, you know, and yeah. this was, she had to, she was cast against type and had to sex it up, so to speak. And she is, very sexy in this movie. Very sexy, definitely. And and of course, the biggest, the most remembered moment from this movie, and this is the thing that you've probably seen, and you probably don't even know it's from this movie, but it's been parody. <laughs> it was parodied in Airplane. It um, uh, Airplane, you know, the seaweed that gets on them on the beach, you know. And but it's uh, the moment on the beach where she and Bart Lancaster are making out and the way and the camera follows the wave as it covers them as they roll over in the sand. And it's like it's it's iconic. It's beautiful. And it almost wasn't. That was a very last minute um, suggestion that Fred Zinneman came up with while filming. He said, you know what, let's follow the waves. That seems sexy. He they was right. supposed to be standing up too. Yeah, isn't that wild? <laughs> Apparently, you can go that you can go to that spot in Hawaii. Um, I want to secretly. I, I really want to. I, I I'm waiting until I have a special someone, and then we're gonna recreate. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we'll probably end up being super gross because there'll be sand all over us. And you know what's uh, funny? When I was watching it again last night, that was exactly what I thought of. I was like. This must be terrible to do. Like, they probably have salt water all over their lips and they're kissing. They're like eating all the salt water in the sand. I was like, ugh, this must have well, just been nasty. Sam, when you're in I love, saw. you don't think about these things. And you they were rumored it. to be having an off-screen affair during well, it this. Certainly well. shows because the scenes it between does. them are very steamy. Particularly that first scene between them when they're in their uh, in her uh, kitchen. Yes. Um, and it's. Bef- that leading up to him kissing her immediately the two of them have such great sexual oh, yeah. tension it's like when she puts her arm across the doorway not allowing him in and he just stands yes. there looking at it because he's like you're gonna let me in and she does oh like, it's wearing kind of short shorts for always for the time you know and speaking of short shorts uh faster <laughs> uh, i love this era of swimming when men had less conservative swimwear than most men wear now and than women had at the time like they made deborah carr have a skirt um so that sure so that that she wouldn't look as sexual but um but meanwhile burt lancaster (laughs) is wearing basically boxer briefs that are skin tight and uh they have a they have a little crease in the side like a little pleat, um, a little a pleat, you know, yep. that goes up. And I, I texted Sam a screenshot because there's a brief moment where he turns around and you can see just a little bit of his ass. <laughs> oh yeah, it's there. Like, you totally can. Yes, and I can't underemphasize. I know that we have sounded so thirsty. We've been in <laughs> quarantine for a long time, but um, uh. I know that all I talked about last week was Cornell Wilde, but I gotta say, good lord, Burt Lancaster.
perfectly. Like, like I can't. When he walked on screen for the first time in that uniform, it's so tight. I was like, can he even sit down? I don't think he can. <laughs> and you know what? That's fine. He doesn't have to. It's <laughs> fine. He can do whatever he wants to. Oh, and so I true. have to tell you, there are, there is a, you know, there's a circus movie where he's a trapeze artist. What's that one again? It's called Trapeze. Oh, right, right. It has trapeze. Tony Curtis, who is also okay. really hot at that point in time. Mm. And Gina Lola Brigida. Um, I haven't seen it, but I just now I want to because I feel like I'm going to get to see a lot of him. Oh, and he also right. made a movie called The Swimmer, which is based on a popular short story. But he's I'm assuming he's swimming without a shirt on in that movie. So I feel like I'm just going to have to watch these movie to, movies to oogle at Burt Lancaster, which makes me feel a little um, like I'm sexualizing a person who was also very smart, a good actor, and who uh, tried to make really important films but all but you that know what <laughs> sometimes when you take your shirt off you can get more people to watch it and that's half the battle you know it's true um but then audrey hepburn we cannot uh, not talk about audrey hepburn oh my god uh roman holiday um is probably the number two movie in the best picture category um which oh, we yeah. haven't technically gotten to it's william wyler who is again proving he can do any genre um, it has fabulous location work in Rome. Um, it's just like a love letter to the city. It has a great little love story between Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. And it's Audrey Hepburn. It's not her film debut, but it's the first movie she has a lead in. And she was an unknown before this film. And, um, and she, you, I mean, like people talk about Audrey Hepburn all the time, probably more so than any other classic film star besides Marilyn Monroe, maybe. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she's a style icon and she is so unique looking and has such a interesting cadence because she has that, she grew up in Europe and she spent a lot of time in America and she has that interesting Cary Grant like accent, you know, <laughs> Very and, true. um, <laughs> There's just something about her that is so magnetic, so um, I, I'm this is I'm glad we get to this is not the last time we get to talk about her. And I don't necessarily think this is even her best performance. Agreed. Um, but it is it is maybe it is one of the best. It's not her film debut. I want to emphasize that. But it's her first movie where she is a lead. Right, um, right. And she only made a couple before this, but this is one of the the great first splashes into filmdom ever. Oh yeah! Like she is lightning from minute one, second one. It's you know? truly what they call a star making turn. You know, yeah. this is you can't not take notice of her when you watch this movie, and I think that is summed up perfectly. Um, with the writing of this movie from Dalton Trumbo and the direction, as you mentioned, by William Wyler, the first, like, bit that we get of her mm -hmm. as this, what is she? She's an heiress? She's a princess? Princess, right? Uh, yeah, she is a, she's a princess, yes. She's a princess, yes. The first shot we get of her is so perfect, I have to explain this. She's sitting down, and the camera, though, is on her feet, mm -hmm. and she loses a shoe, and you watch the camera is on her foot as she tries to find her shoe under her dress without uh. looking because she's in front of so many people. 
And to me, that just perfectly sums up everything you need to know about this character. Yes, she's a princess, but she's also a rebel and she's trying to find herself. And which, that is the journey we go on. Which is also such a great summation of the um, of the personality of Audrey Hepburn, of her persona. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, you know, after this, she'll make Sabrina um, and then she'll star in... Uh, movies like Funny Face and Love in the Afternoon and um, uh, all these movies where she plays a similar a charade, movies where she plays a similar type. Yeah. Um, but there's always like this regalness, but there's like a sense of fun, of clumsiness, of whimsy that just makes her, it's like this beautiful princess who is human so it's endearing and i think that's exactly. the reason why um she's so relatable yes you know and yeah. she's like a new type of star in a way too because she's it's not like she's new wave um she's not new wave um uh method acting or actor studio but she also and so she has, and she has those movie star qualities we got to know in the '30s and '40s. But she's also so modern. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. I can't Absolutely. go. I can't go on enough about her. I, I think she's one of the best. And I do really love Deborah Carr. I just want to emphasize that. Like, I think Deborah Carr is, should have had an Oscar. But, yes. but this, it's just, it's hard to deny that this is, this is Audrey's. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely her year. I agree with you. I don't think this is necessarily her strongest performance. But as far as getting an Academy Award goes, yeah. I don't think there is another performance I would give it to her for. Like, this just screams Oscar. You know what I mean? Just the fact that she's a friggin' princess in this. The fact that she's starring opposite Gregory Peck in a William Wyler movie. Like, if you're yeah. going to win an Oscar, that is going to be the repertoire you need to get it. <laughs> 100%. And, you know, she she ends up having a career where she works with like quite literally every great director of the period um, with the exception of Alfred Hitchcock, although they were supposed to work together at one point and it didn't happen. But um, uh, she does end up working with the person who wins best director this year, um, Fred Zinneman and yep. a movie that we'll talk about in a few years called the nun story, which I'm just going to go ahead and really emphasize how much you need to watch that um, before, we, before we, before um, we, because I went on an Audrey dive years ago, and the yeah. Nun story is one of the great performances. I'm Ugh. just gonna throw it on the table right now. Um, and she, I mean, like Breakfast at Tiffany's should be so lightweight, but she makes it so complex in the way that she plays it. Um, the, I mentioned the movie Charade is like such a great little Hitchcockian thriller. Yes. Uh, Wait until dark. Uh, she's, uh, I mean, like, she's yes. great in everything. Um, really Two is. for the Road is a great little movie with her. Um, just, I, I'm so glad that she that she's in our, in in the conversation now. Cause. And I'm also so glad that Roman Holiday did walk off with a few Oscars, not just writing, but also a major award for actress, um, costume, all Although these big awards. Writing, um it technically went to Dalton Trumbo, but it didn't actually go to Dalton Trumbo. Somebody Correct. else took credit because by the point the movie came out, Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted. Yes, he, he was. Not, he was not officially listed as the winner for many, many, many years. Yep. So um, Until, yeah, I believe it was like posthumously he was actually given yeah. the award finally when he was able to come out that he was the actual writer. 
that somebody else took credit because of his blacklisting. It's uh, which, if you want to learn more about that, there's a movie called Trumbo with <laughs> with um, uh, Brian Cranston in an Oscar nominated performance. Yes. <laughs> Bring it all full circle. True, but true. Um, this is another William Wyler movie. We've we've talked a lot about William Wyler. We'll talk about him more. We sure uh, will. Uh, and he just he's he can do any any freaking genre he wants to do he he does the heiress he does best years of our lives he does mrs miniver he knows how to do it it throw now we've thrown a romantic comedy at him and he makes like one of the most insightful best ones ever i mean like i don't yeah and i'll say this too i feel like he has got to be up there on the list of directors who direct actors and actresses to winning performances because it seems like in every movie he makes somebody in the cast gets an oscar you know what i mean he knows he's got to be up there how to work with actors and he he works with actors from different backgrounds and training and he always pulls the best out of people which is one of one of not his only but one of his great talents Mm -hmm. i think that he may be the director who's uh, who's directed the most actors to oscars i think so i think that's a statistic you know, because it goes all the way up to like Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. You know, yep. um, insane. Anyway, uh, however, Roman Holiday did not win the top prize this year because it was from Here to Eternity. Yes, and um, and you know the other movies nominated here we've already mentioned. There's Lily and uh, and Shane and Stalag Seventeen in Best Director. Um, best picture has Julius Caesar in the robe and Shane in addition to Roman Holiday and From Here to Eternity. But there's this is just one of those years where it's a slam dunk, you know? Yeah. There's no question. There's, there's no question. And yeah, this is this movie too is, you know, you looking back on it, it it has as much power today as it did back when it came out. One hundred and fifty-three percent. Um, you see what I did there. Um <laughs> It uh, there's so many levels going on to it, and it could so it could be so easy for this movie to just be a soap opera that has a big, um, cataclysmic event at the end, because yeah. uh, there's lots of movies that are like this. There's one from the 30s called San Francisco, which is a solid film, but the movie San Francisco has all this drama, and then there's an earthquake. You know, like <laughs> right. Um, and and it's good, but it's not like a best picture winner because it's kind of just a soap opera. This is able to find pathos in in the people involved and make it poignant and make it to where this it's not just a movie where this cataclysmic event is thrown in in the last 20 minutes. It doesn't it feels almost as if the cataclysmic event that happens is like a reckoning for all the characters. It yes. feels it feels narrative. It doesn't feel like they just created a story around Pearl Harbor. It almost feels like Pearl Harbor is something that happens in the natural course of events of what these characters have to go through. Exactly. Pearl Harbor is not used as a gimmick in this film Mm -hmm. because there's so much movie before that that has nothing to do with... I mean, I think I was counting. There's only like maybe two or three times throughout the movie where they even mention that they might be going to war soon. You know, that's not really even on these soldiers' minds during this. And what I think is so brilliant about um, when they bring Pearl Harbor into this film at the end is the way it's set up with 
Fred Zinneman, you know, and there's the shot where Burt Lancaster's on the phone and he crosses to lean against a wall and next to him on the wall is a calendar and it says December 7th. And then that's where you're like, oh, oh, oh it's coming. Oh. Or actually, I think it says December 6th, the day before Pearl Harbor. So you know and that. then it's the next day. Exactly. And then the next and day, as they're all eating breakfast, there's a shot of a clock in the background and it says 7.51 a.m right when the bombs dropped and that's exactly when the bombs start happening so he sets it up so delicately but also like not in your face you know it's just hinted at touched upon and that's the mark of just a great direction yeah it's not it's not it's not thrown at you it's it's mm-hmm. subtly hinted at and it does a great job of really driving home just based on what things were concerning these characters the thing that i think it says about world war 2 that is interesting is that it shows how America was so isolationist in thinking that people, they weren't concerned about going to war. You know what I'm saying? Like, that wasn't a present reality. The whole world was falling apart in Europe, but that's not where anyone's brain was yep. at the time. And out in the Pacific? Yeah. Like, that, they didn't think anything was going to be touching them anytime too soon. Um, apparently, a scene was cut where... Montgomery Clift uh, speculates it's the Germans who are doing the bombing. Interesting, um, yeah. Which is which adds a whole level to it too. So it's just it's just such a good. It ends up saying something about World War II, but it also doesn't lean so heavily on this super well-known event that was even closer in people's memories than it is to ours oh, yeah. at the time. Um, I mean, this would be like. Only 12, 13 years before. Yeah, this would be like us making a movie about the recession. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, this is like us making a movie about Slumdog Millionaire winning Best Picture. <laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> so true. where were we when that happened? Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but it really is... Um, it, it's, it, it's, you're right. It's the mark of a great director... Um, I love that the category, I mean, like four of the people nominated for best director are William Myler, George Stevens, Billy Wilder, and Fred Zinnemann. Like what a great, just like, uh, I know it's like a who's who in directors in these, like the forties and fifties, it's just some of the biggest directors putting out their biggest work. And I think a lot of that is because of world war two and they had all these stories they wanted to have told, you know, and I think we just get some of their best work in these two decades. But here's a question for you. I am curious about the the from here to eternity that could have been had the censors not existed. What do you think about that? There's I mean, there's so many changes from the book to the film. I'm you know, so many people said this was an unfilmable book because it was almost a thousand pages and there was so much profanity. Well, sex. They had to have the cooperation of the military in order to mm-hmm. use the location. So um, the book is far harder on the military and exposing some injustices that happen within the military. Um, so yeah, there is another movie here that probably could have been made. And it does make me a little interested because um, there is a uh, 1978 or so TV movie with Natalie Wood playing the Deborah Carr part. And yeah. I would be almost interested to watch that, even though it probably doesn't have quite the production value of this, just just to see if they're a little bit more faithful since they could probably get away with more at that point in time. But, uh, you know, and also the part 
how different's the movie if Joan Crawford plays the Deborah Carr part. Listen, when I read that, I, yeah, our listeners need to know, Joan Crawford was almost cast in this movie, but she didn't get it because she didn't like the wardrobe and they wouldn't let her use her own cameraman. <laughs> I just think Which, that's... Might I say, like, it's interesting because Joan Crawford definitely would have been an older... Which may have been more appropriate for the character. Yeah, right? I think she'd do great, uh, actually. An older part, and it definitely would have been... Uh, it it, it would have maybe changed the way the rest of her career goes, yeah. you know? But because it was such a huge hit. But ultimately, it's... I, I can't imagine anyone else doing this. Yeah. Because everything from the kiss on the beach to the sexual tension with Burt Lancaster, like how does any of that happen with somebody who would be such a focal point like Joan yeah. Crawford? You need, you needed somebody who could match Burt, Burt Lancaster, but not take anything away from him. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, no, she it was does. Perfect. I get it. And you the really way are. that they allow characters to be introduced in long shots, mm. you know, did you notice that? I was going to say that too. When Deborah Carr is introduced, I thought it was so interesting when she's walking from her car to where Montgomery Cliff and Burt Lancaster are standing. It doesn't cut. It doesn't cut. And we, we, um, the audience get all of our information about her as she's walking to the men by what they're saying about her. She doesn't get a very fair introduction. You know, it's somebody else's opinion about her that we're but hearing first. We, the people who hold the perspective in the film end up being the ones who tell us about her and we get to see from their point of view, her approach. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing. One of my favorites. Yeah. I love this movie so much. Anywho. Uh, so next week, I could not be more excited for what's coming next week. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. We're going to be discussing on the waterfront and basically going to be talking about Eli Kazan and Marlon Brando again for <laughs> about an hour. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much it. There's also a big Best Actress discussion to happen for next week, and we're going to be all over it. <laughs> yes, we are. So uh, join us again next week as we talk about On the Waterfront. <laughs>